You are listening to the Spiritual Classics Podcast presented by LearnOutLoud.com. Here we collect key concepts from a wide range of religious traditions throughout human history. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.LearnOutLoud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, Faith and Reason, the Philosophy of Religion, taught by Professor Peter Kreft. To check out this course and over a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this lecture, Professor Kreft explores what religion is and what questions it tries to answer. He also goes over a brief history of philosophical definitions of religion. He feels that religion relies on faith and experience, while philosophy relies on reason and logical argument. Yet he finds many ways that the fields of philosophy and religion have intersected throughout history. Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar series, where great professors teach you. My name is Richard Poe, and I'll be your host. Today we begin a course entitled Faith and Reason, the Philosophy of Religion. Your professor is Peter Kreeft, a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Professor Kreeft has written more than 40 books, including Fundamentals of the Faith, The Best Things in Life, Back to Virtue, Socratic Logic, Ecumenical Jihad, and Summa of the Summa. He received his bachelor's degree from Calvin College and his Ph.D. from Fordham University. Professor Kreeft has been at Boston College for 40 years. Through the ages, mankind has been fascinated by questions that fall outside the realm of daily experience. Is there a God? How can we explain the presence of evil? Do humans or human souls live on after death? Is there a hell? The following lectures examine these eternal questions and present the most compelling arguments for and against God's existence. We'll also explore the seeming conflicts between religion and science, and the different truth claims of the world's most popular religions. Most importantly, we'll try to discover the best way to pursue questions of faith, as we investigate why religion has played such a critical role in human experience. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and, yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin Faith and Reason, the Philosophy of Religion, Lecture 1. What is religion? Why is it worth thinking about? And now, Professor Kreeft. Lecture 1. What is religion, and why is it worth thinking about? First, what is religion? The word is easy to define. Religion comes from the Latin word religare, which means to relate, to yoke together, or to bind back. And this tells us something about religion, that its essential purpose is to relate us, or to yoke us, or to bind us to something, something greater than ourselves, something absolute and invisible, something supremely real and supremely authoritative, something like God. Well, why is religion worth thinking about? Because it's more important to most people than anything else in life, and because it makes the greatest claims to be true. 
If those claims are true, they are the most important truths in the world. And if they're false, they are the most important falsehoods in the world. Religion is either the world's biggest truth or the world's biggest lie. It's either a fact, like sand, or a fantasy, like Santa. And if it's a fantasy, it's our greatest fantasy. If it's a human invention, a human idea, it's the biggest invention, the biggest idea we've ever had. Just measure its size for a minute. Weigh it. Compare it to all the other inventions, all the other ideas we've ever had. Put on one side of the scale the control of fire, the domestication of animals, and the cultivation of wheat, the wheel, the ship, and the rocket ship, soap, electricity, anesthetics, baseball, surfing, symphonies, and a million other great inventions. Then put onto the other side of the scale a single idea, the idea of a being that is actual, absolute, ideal, perfect, one, eternal, all-knowing, all-loving, all-just, all-merciful, all-powerful, undying, impervious, unbribable, incorruptible, uncompromising, and unchangeable. And in the three Western religions that stem from Abraham, this abyss of pure being is also a person, a self, an I, with consciousness and will, a cosmic creator, designer, savior, and provider, cosmic artist, musician, scientist, poet, sage, and lover. It's disputable whether such an idea is a fact or a fantasy, but it's indisputable that it's either the biggest fact or the biggest fantasy. Religion has made a greater difference, has guided or misguided more lives than anything else in history. Try this thought experiment. Suppose no one in history had ever conceived any kind of religion. Now, rewrite human history, subtracting just this one factor. You can't do it. From the earliest funeral artifacts to today's terrorists, religion has been the mainspring of the watch of human history. What is the philosophy of religion? Religion is, as we've said to most people, the most important thing in life. And philosophy, which means literally the love of wisdom, tries to think about the most important things in life. Therefore, philosophers naturally think about religion. But philosophy is done by reason, by logic, while all the religions of the world depend on some kind of faith. And faith means believing something you can't prove. Philosophy and religion use different methods. Yet philosophy and religion investigate many of the same questions. Like, is there a God? Is there a soul? What is the ultimate point and purpose of our lives? What is our greatest good? What is happiness? Where did we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? Why do we suffer? Why do we die? What happens after death? How should we live? These are the most important questions we've ever asked, and both philosophies and religions ask them. But why do we need to philosophize about religion? Because the more important the questions are, the more difficult they are to get clarity and certainty about. Perhaps this means we will have to end with skepticism about them, if we are honest and humble enough. And perhaps not. But we'd better not begin as skeptics, and assume at the outset that we can never find the truth about such things. That would be dogmatic skepticism. If we want to do philosophy, we should be skeptical skeptics, not dogmatic skeptics. We should be skeptical of everything, even skepticism. We should keep an open mind about everything, even about keeping an open mind. As Chesterton said, an open mind is like an open mouth. It needs to be opened because it needs to be filled. 
religions claim to fill that mind with true food. Philosophy of religion investigates that claim. It investigates what the food is, what it means, and whether it's edible, whether it's true. To put it in a different image, religion is like an advertisement and we are like consumers. The product claims to be the meaning of life, and the price is the allegiance of your mind and your soul. So you'd better ask the salespeople some searching questions about the product before you decide to buy it, or not to buy it. Or, to use a still different analogy, you are Juliet and religion is Romeo's proposal to elope. You'd better get to know Romeo before you go away with him, or turn him down. Well, if we're going to be philosophical, we need to be logical. And if we're going to be logical, we need to start with definitions. That's what Socrates always did. A definition tells us the nature of the thing, the essence of the thing, what the thing is. If you don't know what it is, you don't really know anything else about it because you don't know what you're talking about. The basic logical rule for a good definition is that it's not too narrow and not too broad. If it's too narrow, it doesn't cover all the instances of the thing it's trying to define, and if it's too broad, it doesn't clearly distinguish that thing from all other things. But when we try to define religion, we find it surprisingly difficult. We almost always give too narrow a definition, like faith in God and life after death, which doesn't cover Buddhism, Taoism, or Confucianism, or else the definition is too broad, like an answer to life's ultimate questions, which doesn't distinguish religion from atheism, Marxism, materialism, or secular humanism. Perhaps religion is one of those things that are so basic and so close to us that we can't define them, like the concept of the self, or time, or life, or being, or art. Even though we can't define them, we all know how to use these words correctly. You must have known something about what religion is, otherwise you wouldn't have bought this series of lectures. So, instead of beginning with a definition, let's begin with what we all know but can't formulate clearly. Well, why did I waste your time talking about defining religion, then, if I can't do it? To show you that you can't either. To teach you lesson one, that we all know much less than we think we know. To give you a sense of mystery, of the smallness of our minds and the bigness of the questions. Because I think without that sense, there never would have been any religion or any philosophy either. That sense is wonder, the feeling of a very small child in a very large, mysterious, and interesting house. Philosophy begins in wonder, said Socrates, and Plato, and Aristotle. So does religion. The two kinds of wonder are different, of course. Religion's wonder is more mystical, more adoring. Philosophy's wonder is more curious, more questioning. But they both begin in wonder. Perhaps it's not so bad that we can't define religion in general, because most people aren't that interested in the definition of religion in general. They're more interested in particular claims of particular religions, just as a lover is more interested in his particular beloved than in a general definition of love. Only philosophers and scientists are more interested in the abstract than the concrete. Like the philosopher who died and met God and God offered him a choice, he could go to heaven or he could go to a lecture on the concept of heaven, so he chose the lecture. Well, I'm a philosopher, and yet I laugh at that joke with you, which shows that I'm a human being before I'm a philosopher, and that not all philosophers are fools.
we find a problem about method as well as a problem about definitions. Should the philosophy of religion be involved or detached, inside or outside? Philosophy of religion is not religion. You can't do religion and critically evaluate it at the same time, just as you can't fall in love and critically evaluate love at the same time. If Romeo starts psychoanalyzing his love, he stops loving Juliet. When you evaluate anything, you're outside it. When you do it, you're inside it. You can't be both. So here's our dilemma. The study from the outside seems like the only fair approach. It's neutral and unprejudiced. But religion's data is largely an inside affair, like love. And unless we have inside data, unless we have experience, we're bound to talk nonsense, like a two-year-old talking about sex or a tone-deaf person about music. But to speak from inside is not to be neutral and unprejudiced. The lover is not neutral and unprejudiced about his love. He shouldn't be if he's a real lover. Neither is the believer unprejudiced about his religion, and he shouldn't be. By the way, I use the generic he not because I think men are in any way more human than women, but because I'm a man. If I were a woman, I'd use the generic she. So please don't be offended. Somehow we need to combine both approaches. Without the outside approach, we have no clarity or objectivity or logical proof. Without the inside approach, we have no data, no experience, only empty words. Does that mean we have to be religious believers and practitioners to do the philosophy of religion? No. But I think it means we need at least some imaginative empathy, just as the believer needs to have some empathy to understand atheism. We all need to listen before we talk back. And that's something both good religion and good philosophy tell us to do. I think an examination of our initial spontaneous attitudes towards religion might reveal something useful. Let's begin there. Here are four statements about religion, not the vague, abstract, generic concept of religion in general, but whatever concrete, particular religion you know best, you were brought up in, you believe, or you once believed, and you now disbelieve. Which of these four statements do you identify with? Number one. This religion is the most important source of truth and goodness. Truth for your mind about life's most important questions and goodness for your life and your moral choices and your personality. Religion makes you wise and good. Let's call people who check answer number one the believers or the traditionalists. Number two, it is the world's greatest illusion and con job. The thing most people believe is the number one source of truth and goodness, but which really is not that at all, but is the number one source of superstition and oppression. Let's call people who check this answer the unbelievers or the radicals. Number three, it is an illusion or a superstition or a myth rather than truth if you take it literally or too seriously, but it's still a good thing for your life because it makes you better and happier. God is a sort of a good Santa Claus myth for grown-ups. It's not true, but it's good, because it makes you good. Let's call people who check this answer the revisionists or modernists or demythologizers. Number four, it's none of the above. It's simply not interesting, not an issue. Let's call people who check this answer the indifferent.
I think if everyone took this test, it would show two striking differences between our modern Western culture and all other cultures in history. One of the differences is obvious. There are fewer believers in the West today, especially in Europe, and more unbelievers and revisionists than in almost any past culture. But a second difference, I think, is even more significant. In most past cultures, you could find some unbelievers and some revisionists, but hardly ever any of the indifferent, especially among the thinkers, the educated, the intelligentsia. But in our culture, indifference is probably the majority view of the thinkers. Perhaps that was the category you yourself checked, though probably not, since you were at least interested enough to listen to these lectures. But you probably know many people who would check that category, especially if you live in the blue states, in large cities, or near universities. Yet religion has traditionally been the least indifferent thing, the most passionate thing in human life, the thing martyrs die for, the thing saints live for, and the thing the most fanatical wars have been fought over. It is the most controversial topic in the world. If you want to turn a friendly dinner party into a battlefield, start arguing religion. Why is religion so controversial? Because people are passionate about it. But why are people so passionate about it? Because it's so interesting. Probably its only rival is sex and romance. Why is it so interesting? Because the questions it claims to answer are so interesting. For instance, how can I find joy? What is ultimate reality? What happens at death? And its answers, whether true or false, whether liberating or oppressive, are surprising. For instance, that you find joy by dying to the desire for it, or that ultimate reality is a single being so real that it is indefinable, or that death is your opportunity for supreme life in consummating your life's courtship with this being. That might be a great big fairy tale or a great big truth, but how could anyone find these claims small? Or boring. But we still haven't solved our dilemma about method. Is there any method that fulfills the demands of both the outside approach and the inside approach? I think there is. In one word, listening. If we begin with the outside approach, listening will send us to our data, to listen carefully to it, and to the religious believer, and to the critic, and to the saint and the mystic, to listen to their passion, to empathize, to try to enter into their experience imaginatively as best we can. If we do not listen respectfully and non-judgmentally before we begin to judge and evaluate and argue, we will have no data about religion. We'll have only words. And it's the logical and objective and scientific approach that demands this listening, this attention to data. That's the basic rule of fairness in any conversation, to be a good listener. That's precious. And unfortunately, it's also rare. The inside approach also demands listening, because every religion in the world tells us to listen. To God, wherever he speaks, or to whatever is the ultimate reality, even if it's not called God, and to listen to our own deepest selves and to each other, and to listen to justice and reason as well as faith. Silence and listening are the only soil that religious plants can grow in. All the saints and sages and mystics say that, all the prophets and prayers of all the religions. Listening to the other is an act of mental unselfishness. 
Every religion in the world declares war on our natural selfishness and egotism and narrowness and prejudice and self-righteousness. The saints of every religion are strikingly similar there. Their creeds look strikingly different, but their souls look strikingly similar. And saints are religion's best-selling points. It seems only fair to judge a company by its best products, though listening to all the data demands that we listen to its worst products, too. Listening doesn't contradict talking back, asking questions, and being critical. Those are two parts of the same thing, honesty. And these two parts of honesty have proved to be humanity's two most powerful instruments for finding truth in every field, from understanding people to understanding the universe. First listen, then talk back. Well then, when we do this talking back, when we do this critical questioning, how do we do it? Is there a method? Is there a structure? Yes, there is. It's called logic. Basic logic tells us to demand three things of any argument. Clear definitions of terms, true premises, true data, and logically consistent proofs. And the rules of logic apply always and everywhere, in every field. There is no such thing as religious logic any more than there is any such thing as nuclear logic or musical logic or Japanese logic or sexual logic. If you argue that electrons can change orbits instantaneously and whatever can do that disobeys the laws of Newtonian physics, therefore electrons disobey the laws of Newtonian physics, you have proved your conclusion, if you have clear definitions and true premises. And if you argue that music is powerful and everything powerful is dangerous, therefore music is dangerous, that is a logical argument. And if you can define your terms and be sure your premises are true, you have proved your conclusion. Just as if you argue that Zen meditation reveals the emptiness of yourself and whatever reveals the emptiness of the self is the solution to the puzzle of the self, therefore Zen meditation is the solution to the puzzle of the self, that is a logical argument. And if the terms are clear and the premises are true, you have proved your conclusion. The rules of logic do not change when we insert religion into the content. What is illogical is simply unintelligible. If you say that God can perform not just miracles but contradictions, such as making good to be evil and evil to be good, if you say that God can really violate not just physical laws but logical laws, you have not said anything that has any meaning at all. A set of words that has no possible meaning to any human mind, like the sentence, good is evil, does not suddenly acquire meaning when you add four more words to it, God can do this. What I've just said about logic and religion is not a religious or anti-religious opinion, that some people believe and other people disbelieve. It is a self-evident truism, like two plus two equals four, and I think no one can disagree with it if only they understand what it means. But though the laws of logic must apply to religion, what about the laws of other, more specific methods that we have found useful in other fields, such as the scientific method? Clearly, it would be unfair to argue, as one famous atheist did, that God does not exist because I cannot find him in my test tube. You cannot find your own mind there either. You can only find chemicals there. And the word God does not mean some chemical. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the scientific method, but that doesn't mean there aren't other good methods, too. And to say that we should believe only what can be proved by the scientific method is self-contradictory, 
for that principle, that we should believe only what can be proved by the scientific method, cannot be proved by the scientific method. But we might be able to use some parts of the scientific method in religion, though not others. One of the most important steps of the scientific method is called universal methodic doubt. It means beginning not with unquestioned assumptions, but with doubt. Subject everything to question. Assume nothing, demand proof of everything. This principle is very useful not only in the hard sciences, but elsewhere, for instance, in detective work or in practical politics, or perhaps even in philosophy. Descartes tried it. So perhaps it is also useful for philosophizing about religion. But it will not be appropriate if religion is more like getting to know another person than it is like getting to know a concept or a material thing, or the sum total of all material things that we call the universe. You can't get to know people if you assume that everything they say is false until they prove it's true. The best method for understanding people is methodic faith rather than methodic doubt. Assume innocence until you prove guilt. Assume that the other person is telling the truth until you have good reason for believing that they are ignorant or lying. So, if religion is more like friendship with another person than it is like physics, then the appropriate method will be methodic faith rather than methodic doubt. Methodic faith is still critical. It's not naive. Socrates used the method of methodic faith in philosophy. He assumed that the other person was right until proved wrong. Then he went on to prove almost everybody wrong about almost everything. Perhaps we will end up doing the same to religion, perhaps not. But in either case, I think our method should be neither universal methodic doubt, nor naive, unquestioning belief, but universal methodic faith, followed by critical questioning. And another word for universal methodic faith is listening. There's one other part of the scientific method called Occam's Razor, from William of Occam, a 13th century British philosopher, that says hypotheses should not be multiplied without necessity. In other words, always prefer the simpler explanation. If you can explain Nazi Germany by economic depression and resentment at losing World War I, then don't bring in concepts like fate or predestination or historical necessity or the will of God. If you can explain insanity by a chemical imbalance in the brain, don't bring in the soul or evil spirits. So this principle has been very useful in the sciences. But doesn't it lead to atheism? If everything we find in our experience... Everything we think about in the natural and the human sciences can be explained without God. Doesn't God violate Occam's razor? And I think the answer is, in science, yes, but in philosophy, no. Just as your shaving razor is useful for your face, but not for your head, I think Occam's razor is useful for science, but not for philosophy. It excludes too much data. Not all data is scientific data. For instance, is love only animal appetite? Is thought only cerebral biochemistry? Is man only a clever ape? This kind of reductionism, reducing the complex to the simple, may be good science, but it's bad philosophy. It's like laser light, powerful but narrow, more focused but less wide. And there's also a logical problem in using reductionism to exclude religion. 
The formula for reductionism is that A is nothing but B. Now, how do you know there's nothing more in A than B? Do you know absolutely all of A? Are you infallible? Aren't you assuming a knowledge only God can have? If only God can have such knowledge and you claim to have it, aren't you assuming that there is a God, namely you? There may be some good reasons for believing in the more complex explanations that religion offers, and you can't discount those reasons just by saying that you should always use the simplest possible explanation. You have to listen to all sides. And that's certainly not unscientific. In fact, the most important of all principles of science, even more important than Occam's razor, is the principle that all hypotheses are to be tested by the data. Gathering data, looking at all the data, listening to the data, is essential. And if Occam's razor prevents us from doing that, then it is not scientific. We still haven't defined religion. I've been putting off that task because it's rather dull, but it's also necessary. So, here we go. I shall make it as short as I can, like a dentist. To define the philosophy of religion, we have to define religion and philosophy. I said earlier that I couldn't define religion clearly, so let's settle for a description. A definition gives the essence, a description gives a property. One of the properties of all religions is faith. Every religion asks you to believe something that you can't see and can't prove. But this is still not specific enough. I believe I will wake up tomorrow morning, and I believe there are no men on Mars, and I believe the Red Sox deserve to crush the Yankees in 2004. But these are not religious beliefs. They're only opinions. Religious belief is called faith. People aren't usually willing to die for their opinions, but they're often willing to die for their faith. Opinions aren't lived 24 hours a day, but faith is. The object of a mental opinion or belief is a mere idea. The object of a religious faith is more than an idea. The object of religious faith is God or gods or nirvana or Tao. Not, not just the idea of God or the idea of nirvana. In fact, all the religions claim that there is no adequate idea of God or nirvana or Tao or whatever it calls the ultimate reality. Nirvana is not this, not that. The Tao that can be told is not the real Tao. Only God knows who God is. The religious claim is not that we know God, but that God knows us. Philosophy is a bit easier to define. Philosophy of religion is a subdivision of philosophy, and philosophy means the love of wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowledge, but understanding and understanding not just things like languages and animals and geometry, things we can all see and learn about scientifically and commonsensically, but things like human nature and moral values and the purpose of human life, if there is any, and the ultimate reality, or the ultimate explanation for all reality, or something like God. And since all religions claim to tell us something interesting and important about human nature and moral values and the purpose of human life and the nature of ultimate reality, or God, therefore there is a natural interface between philosophy and religion in subject matter, even though there's a sharp distinction in method. Philosophy uses only reason, not faith. It critiques faith, it evaluates faith, as it evaluates everything else, by reason. So we had better define reason, too, 
because there are broader and narrower meanings that often get confused. I think Socrates and Descartes and Kant are the three thinkers who most importantly change the meaning of the concept reason, all narrowing it in different ways. So we can distinguish four meanings of reason, increasingly narrow as they get increasingly modern. The pre-Socratic, the Socratic, the Cartesian, and the Kantian. Before Socrates, reason meant everything that distinguished man from animals, including intuition, mystical experiences, and dreams. Socrates narrowed it to mean giving clear definitions and logical proofs. Socrates really invented logic about 2,400 years ago. Then, about 400 years ago, Descartes narrowed it further to mean something more like the scientific method, even in philosophy. The act of calculating, reasoning, proving, rather than wisdom or understanding. Something we all have an equal ability to do, rather than something like wisdom that some of us have more of than others. Finally, Kant psychologized reason. He said that our reason constructs or shapes the world rather than discovering it, so it can't know things as they are in themselves. We can't know objective reality by reason. Now, that's a terribly simplified history of Western philosophy in one minute, but I give it to you not for the history, but for the clarification of our definition of reason. I will use reason in the way most people still use it, in the Socratic way. Mystical experience or dreams or intuition or myths will not count as reason, even though all may contain great wisdom and profound value, but only what is definable and provable. But I won't narrow the term any more than that. I won't identify philosophical reason with scientific reason or reduce reason to calculation, as Descartes did, and I won't assume that reason can never know objective reality, as Kant did, because that would really reduce philosophy to psychology. Now, you don't have to agree or disagree with Socrates or Descartes or Kant. I'm just telling you how I will use the word reason in these lectures, especially when I talk about the relation between religious faith and philosophical reason. So let's talk about that right now. What is the relation between faith and reason? I don't mean the relation between the act of believing and the act of reasoning in our minds. That's for the psychologist. I mean the logical relation between the ideas believed and the ideas reasoned to. Put all that is believed by religious faith into propositions, declarative sentences, and do the same with all that is known by reason alone, without any religious faith. Now, put each of these lists of propositions into a class, and imagine each class as a circle. One circle contains all the things religion teaches and claims to be true and invites us to believe. The other circle contains all the things we can define and prove by reason. Now our question is, how are these two circles related to each other? Do they overlap totally, or a lot, or a little, or not at all? Can reason define and or prove everything, most things, only a few things, or no things that are believed by religious faith? That's one question. And here's a second one. Are there any propositions in one circle that contradict any propositions in the other? Do faith and reason, do religion and logic contradict each other? We don't have time to look at the truth claims of every religion, so for practical purposes in these lectures we'll concentrate about 
80% of the time on the common beliefs of the three most familiar religions in our culture, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and about 10% of the time will broaden out to include Eastern religions, especially Hinduism and Buddhism, and about 10% of the time focus more specifically on Christianity. There's no one standard answer among Jewish, Christian, or Muslim philosophers to the question of how much of religious faith can be proved by reason. The most popular and traditional answer is not all of it, for then faith would not be necessary, and not none of it, for then philosophy of religion would be impossible, but some of it. For instance, in the Middle Ages, Maimonides, Aquinas, and Avicenna all argued that reason can prove the existence of God, but not his choices and purposes, and that reason can prove the existence of life after death, but not many of the details of it. But what about the more important question? Are there any contradictions between faith and reason? No Orthodox Jew, Christian, or Muslim can admit that there are any, because if God created us in his image, and reason is part of that image, then when we use that instrument rightly, we're being taught by God, just as when we interpret the divinely revealed scriptures rightly, we're being taught by God, and God never contradicts himself. Therefore, there can never be any real contradictions between religious faith and reason. If there were, then reason would have disproved that part of religious faith, so an honest person would no longer believe it. So either the religion can be proved to be false, or there are no contradictions between faith and reason. So it is crucial for a religious believer, who is also a philosophical thinker, to show that there are no such contradictions. Only a schizophrenic or a hypocrite can believe on Sunday what he disbelieves on Monday. Therefore, our next topic will be to explore the claim that there are such contradictions, to explore the arguments against religious belief, the case for atheism, or the falsity of all religion. Atheism is the simplest answer to all the puzzles of the philosophy of religion. It claims that all the puzzles are there because religion is a dream or a nightmare and that reason can wake us up from that bad dream. We will explore 20 arguments for that position in the next lecture. This ends Lecture 1.